0: Thirty-two times in thirty-one verses you find the name God in Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 2, God turns His attention to the creation of man, even though it had been covered in chapter 1 to some degree. Genesis 1 and 2 cover the period of the Bible that you can call the world prior to sin. No sin had entered the world by the time of the events of Genesis 1 and 2.
1: God had given his law of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it,
0: for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis two, sixteen and seventeen. Genesis three through twelve, the background of redemption. You have sin entering the world, Genesis three, six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So they sinned. Sin entered the world. Now sin is man's problem. Now man needs to be redeemed or else he'll be lost. Genesis 3.15, that, that first promise of redemption is given. God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So it's God speaking to the serpent, saying that the seed of woman is going to crush your head. And so that's the first promise of Christ, Christ coming into this world. Galatians 4.4 4 talks about the fulfillment of that promise, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Genesis 12, we find the threefold promise to Abraham. Land, seed, and nation. And you'll remember that Jesus is also, not only is He the seed of woman, but He's the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. So Genesis 3-12 to is the background of redemption, and of course in the midst of that you have the picture of the flood, which is the greatest picture of worldwide judgment that we've ever seen and ever know about. But now, Genesis 12-50, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, these are the prominent figures in this section through whom redemption continues to unfold as God is continuing to unfold the plan. And you'll remember that Joseph is the the figure in this section with whom it basically closes as in he was was the leader in, uh, had been elevated to be the leader in uh, Egypt because of God's providence and because of his uh, doing what was right. (coughs) And so you remember how Israel and his family had gone down and they were in Egypt at the close of the book of Genesis. Now I want us to shift our attention and to kind of settle in Exodus 1-12, to particularly in chapter 9 for this evening's lesson. So in Exodus 1-12, to you have slavery and in and judgment upon Egypt. So Israel's family is now in Egypt and you see them growing numerically, Exodus 1-7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. So that's a pro- that, that is indicating that God was carrying out His promise that he said that he had made to Abraham of making them a great nation, a large nation, lots of people, Genesis 12one 3. So here you have that being carried out in, in Exodus 1. But whenever you want to see really the focus of the section, it's Exodus 9:16. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. This is God speaking to Pharaoh himself. It's not, he's not speaking to Moses. He's speaking to Pharaoh, and he says, "...and in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth." So you and I can learn from this passage that God raises leaders into positions for purposes. And in fact, he raised, he raised Pharaoh into the position that where Pharaoh found himself and Pharaoh had a choice to make. He could obey God and it would be to God's glory or he could disobey God and it would be to God's glory. And either way, Israel's coming out of Egypt. It's just it would have gone a lot differently if he had obeyed and followed rather than not obeying as you and I know he did. So I want us to take a look at Exodus 9. You'll remember that um, God had sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. Exodus 5.1 And you remember what Pharaoh's response was. He said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Exodus 5.10 And you'll remember that God began unleashing the plagues upon Egypt. And those plagues were, due, they were serving the purpose of showing, of declaring God's name, not only to Israel, not only to Egypt, but to all the world, just as He said in Exodus 9.16. Now, I want us to focus our attention squarely upon the plague of hell. Because we can learn a lot, you and I, from the plague of hell. Take a look at Exodus 9. So verse 16, we've already noticed. In very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Notice verse 17. As yet, exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go. Verse nineteen, or excuse me, 18. Behold, tomorrow... I will cause it to rain, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt from the foundation thereof even until now. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Verse 22, The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and brake every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. Now let's back up to verses 16 to 21 and take a few lessons from here, and then we'll call a little lesson. Verse verses 16 to 21, we learn a few things that I think we can that can help you and me for today. Whenever we think about what what we're doing as Christians and how we're living as Christians and how we're looking forward or ahead toward the second coming, toward Christ coming to judge this world. You and I know, as we've talked about extensively in the Thessalonian lessons, that one day the Lord will appear and the judgment will take place. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 and following. So we can take these lessons and we can apply them to the second coming and we can understand better what, how God has operated in the past and therefore lessons for us in the future and now. So first of all, I want us to take a little comfort in the fact that sometimes God puts rulers. Well, let me back up and say this. There isn't a ruler that's ever been in place that hasn't been put there by God. You say, well, what about all the terrible people that have been in power? Well, nations have reached what they've sung, unfortunately. Nations have sometimes asked for it nations want those leaders sometimes. Sometimes they don't. But God doesn't erase free moral agency from the picture. He allows people to choose and and decide things. Even people making bad choices get to make bad choices but they then answer for them. But if you couldn't make bad choices then you have no ability to choose right and wrong at all. So God raised up Pharaoh, even Pharaoh the one that was Totally unwilling to acknowledge God, he was stubborn, self-willed, proud, arrogant, and had to no doubt be looked at by those of his rulers, or sorry, not his rulers, those of his advisors as quite foolish. Because they were all at the point of saying, Let's give in. This is this is do you not know that, that Egypt is destroyed? Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? But as you say, as we see there, in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, or to show in thee my power, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So God was using Pharaoh to declare his name throughout all the earth. And I want us to think about.
1: Take a lesson from Pharaoh. God asks him a question here. He says, "As yet, exaltest thou thyself against my people that thou will
0: not let them go." In other words, Pharaoh was refusing to follow the will of God. God's will says, "Let my people go." Exodus 5:1. And just like his response in Exodus 5:2, "Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. God is asking the same question in the same vein here in 9:17, "As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people? that thou will not let Israel go? That's what he's having Moses ask. As yet, exaltest thou thyself against my people? Sometimes rulers exalt themselves against what's good. And that's not good for the people of that land. And that's not good for those around them. But God eventually deals with it. Because rulers have free moral agency to make good or bad choices. Just like the people of the land have decision, have abilities to make good or bad choices evil choices so because of this because of the refusal to follow God so the refusal to let Israel go now you've got the plague of hail coming now I want you to think about this let's think about what we can look at from the plague of hail and what we can take from that and learn about the Lord's the, the second coming so he said, "Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt from the foundation thereof even until now." So notice that he said, "Behold, tomorrow about this time." He gave him the exact time of the hail coming. People have said from time to time, "Well, if you know, why don't we know when the when the Lord's second coming will take place? Won't it be a good thing?" No, we don't need to know it. That's why we don't know it. We have everything we have, as Chuck covered in one of his lessons here recently regarding the second coming. But I want us to pay attention to this. They knew exactly when it was going to take place. Did it save everyone because they knew? No, it didn't. It didn't save everyone because they knew exactly when the bad thing was happening. The punishment was coming tomorrow about this time. didn't matter. Did it matter that the punishment was coming tomorrow about this time? It certainly did. But it didn't matter that some of them knew it because they didn't do anything with the information. They didn't take that knowledge. They didn't take that information and and allow it to have any effect upon their souls, upon upon their spirit, upon their person. And that's what you and I have to ask ourselves. We don't know about the Lord's second coming. We don't know when we'll die. We don't know when our lives will end. But are we going to take information that we have from the Scriptures, from God's Word, and are we going to apply those things to our lives? Because we do know him. He's coming. We do know him. we will die. Whereas you know not what, what is your life. What is your life? Is it a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away? James 4.14 Proverbs 27.1 Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your lord doth come matthew twenty five thirteen son of man doesn't even that Jesus didn't even know it that's what matthew twenty four twenty five is very plain to teach us the father only knew it, so he says. Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail such as hath not been in Egypt from the foundation thereof even until now. Kind of got to start looking around, folks. Things going on around us. Reminds me of the wording, keep your finger here in Exodus 9 and and flip over to... um, Flip over to the book of Amos real quick. You remember Amos really quickly. Amos is the book where God said, For three transgressions and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And you remember how they had been in sin; they were they were selling the righteous, um, they were mistreating the righteous. They their prophet was a drunk prophet that told them lies, similar to some of the things you find in the book of Micah, which makes sense because they're preaching in the same time frame. But in Amos, I want you to notice something. After God had said, you know, can two walk together except they be agreed? Uh, Amos three three. In chapter four, he says. Hear this word, you kind of Bashan that are in in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring, let us drink. The Lord hath sworn by His holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you, that He will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You shall go out at the breaches, every cow at at that which is before her, and you shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. So, Look at verse 6. And also I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Verse 7. Also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, and caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. And one piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And he he lists more in verse 9. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees were increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. The point is this, folks God had been doing things with Israel to cause them to rethink their situation. To, that should have resulted in, if they were listening, spiritually listening, right? Kind of like Jeremiah 4.22, Circumcise yourselves unto the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart. If they had been listening, these, these things were meant to cause them to turn back to God. These things were meant to cause them to rethink their situation and what they were doing and thus repent. But they didn't, and God said, "Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel." Amos 4:12. And you think about how God has operated throughout the past, and the records we have of that in scriptures, that's one of the, that's, to me, that's one of the things that's so intensively instructive out of the Old Testament is, what did God do with people in the past? How did He treat them? How did He deal with them? What did He do when they did this? What did He do when they did that? What happened? I can look and I can see exactly what happened. And I can also see the tremendous, amazing nature of God on display because I can see His grace, His long-suffering, but I can see His justice and His wrath as well. And so you think about that. Every situation you can think of, of any kind of judgment that you can remember. The flood. Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I mean, any situation. Here in the plague of hail in Exodus 9. You see God's nature on display. And you remember Jonah? Remember how Jonah didn't want, to, he didn't want the Ninevites to repent? Didn't want them to be blessed. In fact, he even scolds God for basically sending him and and uh, causing him to preach to them and that they repented. He basically scolds God and said, "I, I told you this would happen, Exodus 4, 1 and 2, because Jonah was very displeased, as you and I have talked about. But what I want you to think about is, like in that question, in that section, Jonah didn't understand not truly understand the nature of God. He didn't understand. He wasn't like God at all. He didn't have the characteristics of God. As in, I don't mean his... I I don't mean... I mean the characteristics that we're supposed to strive to have that we can have. So, here in Exodus 9, he says... Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very good sail. When you and I look around, do we not think that there are things that are going on perhaps providentially in our lives that should be causing the people around us to rethink things? Maybe us to rethink things? And that's a great opportunity for us even though there's some perhaps negative things that we might endure in the process. That's a... That's a positive opportunity because people are more inclined to listen to the truth when they are questioning the realities of what's going on around them. You and I have a great opportunity to teach the truth to people around us whenever they don't like what's going on around them. Because the truth is stable. The truth will set you free, John 8.32. The truth is the only way to heaven, John 14.6. And we can help them understand that truth. But as you know, and as we learn here from Exodus 9, sometimes you tell people, hey, look, danger is coming. Judgment is coming. Destruction is coming. And they don't listen, just like the people in the plague of hail. So he says, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. So now notice, here's the plan of salvation given. Here's the plan of salvation. You know, and I've talked about this multiple times. when well, I've taught the class here in the auditorium and other instances. But I wanted to focus on it tonight and spend time on just mainly this passage. So he says, here's the plan. Here's what you can do. Send, therefore, now. Now. Now's the time of preparation. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't put it off. Don't think you have more time. They knew they didn't have more time. You and I don't know how much more time we have. They knew they had no more time, but in either situation, the time of preparation is now. Send therefore now and gather. Go take care of it now, he said. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle. And I mean, perhaps there's an illustration available in what we see going on in Kabul. As terrible as it is, people are facing some... Regardless of all the things that went into what made it what it is right now, and there's a lot I would have to say about that, but regardless of all the things that made it what it is right now, there are going to be people who will suffer because they were not in by the time before the gate was shut, if you will. Send therefore now and gather. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field. I want you to pay attention to that expression, that prepositional phrase, in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Sounds like there's two places in my mind. You're either in the field or you're not in the field. That's what mattered when it came to the plague of hell. Am I in the field? or am I not in the field? What's going to matter whenever at the Lord's second coming is, am I in the church or am I not? So he said, Send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou, all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, the hail shall come down upon them in the field was going to be the hail. In the field was going to be the wrath of God being poured out in that situation. But the wrath of God was tempered with long-suffering, grace, and mercy to give truth to people to allow them to escape that problem. But look what people did. There were two very pointedly different reactions responses to the truth of God. Two very different. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. So, even though they knew the time, even though they knew where the problem was going to be in the field, there were still two different reactions. I mean... When you know the time, you know the place, you know what you're escaping, you know when to do it, is there anything that should prevent a person from leaving the place where the problem's going to be? No. What about the church? You see, reconciliation to God, sin brought about our separation from God. That's what sin does. In each person's life, whenever they leave that period, that situation or period of innocence, and they enter into sin, they are then severed from God. Sin brings about death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. So sin brings about death. It separates us from God. It's eternal separation from God without sin. The reconciliation available in Christ. Ephesians two sixteen, for example, and that He might reconcile unto God in one body, and that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Ephesians two sixteen is a sermon in and of itself. Think about that. And that He God might reconcile both unto, or sorry, that He Christ, that He might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God. Where does the reconciliation take place? In one body, by the cross. So notice that. The reconciliation, there's a sphere in which that reconciliation takes place. It's in the body. And there's a means by which that's accomplished. It's by the cross. Who did this reconciliation? Jesus did. God allowed it. God made it possible. And that He might reconcile both unto God, in one body, by the cross the instrumentality of the cross notice it god sent jesus to die for man as we noted this morning from john 3:16 making that blood available making it possible for man to be saved romans 5:8-9 god commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him god reconciles man to him god through christ reconciles mankind unto himself through the cross, but it happens in the body, which is the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross through, uh, un- through the cross. <laughs> Ephesians 2.16 first, and then Ephesians 1.22 and 23, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. There we go. And now Ephesians 1.22 and 23, and hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. His, he's the head of the body, the body of the church. That's where the reconciliation takes place. Now take a look at it, Romans chapter 6 for a moment. You're very familiar with this passage. Incredibly familiar with it, no doubt. And that's good. You should be. In fact, let me pause there for a second. I had forgotten to do something I wanted to mention at the beginning of class. Or not class, the sermon. But this is a perfect opportunity because we need to be familiar with are passages we ought to grow. We should be growing in our familiarity with the whole Bible. But that's why I say you're no doubt familiar with Romans 6 because of your desire to study the Bible. Let's say a word about that real quick regarding the church and the church's role in things. Because after all, we want to learn what we can do to make sure we don't fall into a situation like the plague of hell where we're in the field rather than in the house. So think about this. the church. A lot of people look at the church as if it's the, the instrument, the thing that's going to make sure that me and my family go to heaven. I don't mean like the location of reconciliation that we were just referring to. I mean as in, the church is, some people have the attitude and mindset, the church is responsible for teaching me and my family and taking care of our educational needs. False. The church is accountable to teach the right things to your family, yes. But you are responsible for teaching your family. The church is a supplement of that. And folks, look around us. This world needs some life in it not darkness.
1: There's plenty of ignorance, plenty of darkness, plenty of
0: evil, but I believe there's still plenty of people that want to hear the truth and want to hear see the light and not want to be wrapped up in all the garbage that's going on. Well, let me let me make some suggestions. If we're not already doing it, we need to have a plan of how we're studying the Bible as a family, as a family unit. That is we're going to continue to read through the Bible, study it, talk about key verses. How whatever the exact instrument, the exact method that you use, there's there's a lot of ways of doing that. But read through the scriptures and talk about it with your family. Read through the scriptures and talk about it with your family. And let me also suggest this. Our families are going to come under attack if the Lord tarries long enough in his second coming and also if he tarries long enough in the destruction of this nation our families are going to come under attack
1: there's not really a question about that it'll eventually happen the question isn't if it's a matter of when and a matter
0: of degree so there are some things that we ought to be with which we ought to be familiar the scriptures number 1 And there's three other subjects at least that we ought to be very familiar with or that will help us. Hermeneutics, number one, the study of the biblical study of biblical interpretation. Number two, how we got the Bible. If you and I don't know how we got the Bible, how it was compiled, how it was put together, we got a problem. Because we're just trusting that this is what it is. We can't help people understand how we got it. And then number three. And not not in this particular order, but number three, apologetics. In other words, how do I know God is real? How do I know the Bible is from God? In other words, inspiration of the Scriptures and other things. And that kind of overlaps some, but not totally, with how we got the Bible, that subject. So, going back to Romans 6. Here you are. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail. And so he says, Gather all that are in the field. I will rain hail upon in the field. And he did. And he said, uh, He that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. So I said, we're either in the field or we're not in the field if we're in Exodus 9. Romans 6, where are we? Ephesians 1 said we've either been reconciled in the body or we haven't. Look at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Point being, we're either in Christ or we're not. And if we're in Christ, Paul is making the point here that we would live differently. We've we've arisen to walk in newness of light, Now go back to Exodus 9 and think about that. They were either in the field or they were in the house. They were either in the field or they were in the house. He says, Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. Send therefore now and gather all that thou thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home... The hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. So we're either in the field or we're not. But then, finally, I want us to look at that attitude that you see, the two different attitudes that you see in response to God's Word. There were just two basic attitudes. The person that feared the Word of God and the person that didn't. Or the person that, you could say it another way, that regarded the Word of God or that did not regard the Word of God. And that's always been the case a person either has a profound respect a hum, a humility in them that, that helps them have a pro, profound respect for the word of God the will of God and they will therefore change their ways to align with it or they don't and that's a choice that's always a personal choice just just like people in having the ability to choose to do right and wrong and having the ability to choose good or bad and having the ability to do what is selfish or selfless, you can choose what kind of attitude you'll have toward God in His work. We can develop that, change it. We can improve it. It's not something that's set in stone at birth and can't be affected. No. It's something that is changed and developed along our lives. Let me ask you, you think about yourself, go back through the time, the times that you can remember. Has your attitude toward the Word of God changed over your life? Can you ever think of a time that your attitude toward the Word of God was different than it is now? I mean, even just the slightest difference. Can you, can you identify any of those? Because I know I can. I can go back and I can think of times where my attitude toward the Word of God wasn't it, what it is now. And there's been some variations along the way in my past. But the thing is, you and I can choose. We can grow. We can develop and cultivate that respect for God and His Word. Because that cultivation will lead to action. Because notice, there's the difference, yes, between fearing and not fearing, regarding and not regarding, because that's the basic idea, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We know that the Proverbs writer in Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, what's our response? Do we, do we like it when we're told what the Bible says? Or do we not like it when we're told what the Bible says? Or maybe is the metric in our mind, well, It kind of depends on what I like. I like it when it tells me this. I don't like it when it tells me that. Well, you see, that kind of makes us our own God when we have that attitude. If we allow it to change what we adopt and what we don't adopt, what we follow and what we don't follow. So, they either feared the Word of God or they did not fear the Word of God. They either regarded the Word of God or they did not regard the Word of God. But I want you to notice one of the differences in not only just the attitude toward it, it was the action that followed. Listen again to verses 20 and 21. He that feared the Word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and cattle flee into the houses. He made them flee. He made them flee. He that regarded not the word of the Lord left Left his servants and cattle in the field. No change, no action, no response that led to anything different. Just he left them in the field. So the point there is this. When God gives us a command, obedience requires and includes works. People want to shout up and down about how you're starting to earn your salvation now. Don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as works of merit and those are to be avoided. There is no such thing as a work of merit, meaning there is no work that will merit me salvation. There is no such thing. I cannot merit salvation. I never will be able to. And if I trust in my works like I'm earning it, then I'm lost. That's what Romans 3 is very clear about. But there are such things as works of obedience, works of faith, right? Otherwise, what in the world did Jesus mean when he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. He said, You've got to do the will of the Father to go to heaven. Matthew seven twenty one. These people had to get their servants and cattle out of the field. There are works that go along with faith. There are works that go along with obedience to practice a lack of work, to not respond in faithful obedience means to <coughs> not obey. James chapter 2, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James 2:24. So when Pharaoh was confronted with the plague of hail, he and others have lots of choices to make. And really, I mean a lot of choices when you boil it down to the small things, but really it all kind of meant one choice. What's my response going to be to the Word of God? You and I have that same choice tonight. People all over this nation have that same choice tonight. People all over this world have that same choice Tonight, but you and I can be an instrument to help the country around us and the world around us. But we got to start by making sure we're doing what we need to do. Let's be like those that get the servants and cattle out of the field and into the house, if you will, because the plague of hell is. It is coming. So, that takes us all the way back to how God spoke, what He said to Pharaoh. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Take comfort in this, brethren God can raise up a ruler. That ruler can make terrible choices and God can use that to His glory and benefit and the people of God can be blessed as a result of it even though it might not mean in this life, it will mean in eternity. It will mean in eternity. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ. Why not tonight? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Maybe you've obeyed the gospel and straight away. Why not come back? We would love to help assist you with that. All it takes is your repentance. It takes your willingness to come back and to give up and leave behind that sin. Before we say in our minds how silly those people were for not getting out of the field, let's ask, where are we And are we willing to help get others out of the field? If we can help you, please come while we stand and while we stand.